Now, we're going to do... I'd love to do this as interactively as possible. So that means you've got permission to stop me, interrupt me, ask questions, argue with me, object, or whatever. Um, and that's going to just be really helpful just for me to make sure I'm not you know, either going too fast or too slow or going over some people's heads or dumbing it down too much or whatever. So I need you to just tell me how it's going and with you good questions as you go along. Um, once upon a time, a long time ago, I studied medicine in Glasgow and medicine was taught, at least then, by humiliation, which basically meant that you weren't allowed to not know things. And uh, if you didn't know things, you were too scared to ask questions because you'd make yourself look stupid. Uh, or maybe that's, maybe that's more just of a, a Scottish method of education, I'm not sure. Um, but the thing I've learned over the years, but it's taken many, many, many years to learn, is that if I'm sitting in a group feeling stupid because I've got a question, chances are that there's 90% of the people in the room have the same question. So that's just to reassure everybody and say, if you've got a question, if you didn't understand something or if I've said something you're not quite sure about or don't agree with, I'd much rather, you know, just chip in and let me know that. So I'm really happy about that. So okay to start with everybody. And I, I know a few faces here. A few faces are a bit older than the last time I saw them, but uh, I, I, and I, most of you I don't know those. So um, do just feel free to chip in at any point. We're given this, what we're going to try to do tonight and then in a week's time is just get a big picture of the Bible and say, what's, what is that big picture? What's going on? Is there a big picture in the Bible that helps us understand how all the parts fit together? And why might that even matter would be a good question. And presumably you're here because you think to some extent it probably does matter. So I'll just give you a quick overview of where I hope we're going, although it's a bit of a movable feast, and um, we'll be fairly flexible in how we do this. So tonight, this first part leading up to the break, we'll see if we get through it. When you see if we get through this, it's debatable. Just going to introduce it, queue up some questions, get us asking some of the right questions about this big picture of the Bible, and then a little work example. Um, anyone here? VeggieTales is a bit passive, but when my kids were really, really small, they were into this kids thing called VeggieTales. Anyone? Yeah? So I'm going to ruin that for everybody here, okay? So uh, and, uh, that's a bit of a, an irritating work example just to show why some of this matters. We'll see how we get on into session two, which will be after the break, just talking about, about creation and new creation. And then next week, We'll spend some time thinking about covenant, kings, and prophets. And then we're going to finish with coming of the king, the church age, and the return of the king. So it's a bit of a mixture of themes there, but it's just that big picture of the Bible. The question then is why is it important? And I wonder even if we can just pause for a second. I can get you just to turn the quote around about you and take just 30 seconds or a minute and say, what questions do you come here with tonight? And I'd love to hear what some of your questions are. Okay. Just get you talking to each other for a minute, two minutes, something like that. Okay, ready? Go. <laughs> Thank you. 
Okay, that's a very, uh, a very brief, very brief interaction. Let's just hear what some of your questions are. If you don't mind just uh, calling them out. Let's start, start at this table here. What are some of your questions you come to this with? Well, my main thing is keeping new fish Right. That's a kind of, there seems to be lots of bits here, and, and actually I don't know which way to look yeah. and where to start. Yeah, good. I mean, that's a great question. Good. Well, I, I hope this will be helpful for that, so that's good. The next table there. Uh, so we have questions about, um, about, I guess, just hoping to see a bigger picture. Uh-huh. How often we, we take up chunks at a time to study, mm-hmm. but actually recognising in which themes in particular, the, just two, two evenings, especially our significant ones we're going to talk about. Yeah. Um, and then we had an interesting question about um, in light of in light of Jesus, in light of the way we live now, um, what value is there? Why do we still look back to things that can at first glance look irrelevant or from a long time ago in the Old Testament and that kind of thing? Yeah. The, the boring bits. Boring bits. Right. Why are they important? Yeah. Absolutely. And that's a great question. Anyone here not have that question? Most of us probably have that. We might not admit it, but yeah, absolutely. Are, are all those bits in the Old Testament relevant? If so, why? What do they have to say? Good, great question. Well, you guys were. Well, Lindsay and I, we kind of um, much more just how it all fits together. Okay. okay. Come to the the sort of ex Edinburgh navigators table here. <laughs> What are you doing here? You should know all this stuff already. <laughs> we talked a bit about chronologically, about how is it all relevant the way okay. the times are all. Okay. And we spoke a little bit about in having a positive history of like we know little Bible stories here and there. Okay. Where does it all fit? Okay. Well I hope there's a couple of slides I hope will help just to, to frame some of that. If not tonight, then certainly the, the next time. And, and by the way, just if you've got specific questions, come next week with those specific questions. Even if you want to write some of them down, really happy to take them and we'll spend some time just be, maybe unpacking specific questions that people have. And yeah, probably a good idea. You guys are the away in the back. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Great. 
Sorry about sorry about that. <laughs> okay. Okay. So it's kind of you're starting with not that much knowledge. Right. Okay. Okay. Good. That's helpful to know that you guys at this table here. Right. Okay. What's the, the place of, of Israel? What's the place of the people of Israel? And these kind of questions, which are big questions. Um, and, and what we'll probably do is set a framework, first of all, before answering some of the more particulars. So, yeah, good questions. Uh, were you guys all in the same discussion? Or? Um, our question is not as similar to one of them across there. But, um, why the coming of Jesus is so seminal in God's thinking and in Christian thinking? And yet... There's the Old Testament, far greater than yes. the New Testament. It's actually quite short. Right. Um, so it's about two thirds, one third. Yeah. 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 And and um, yes, okay. We'll come back to that. That's good. Excellent. I hope that you you guys here. Is the God of the New Testament different from God of the Old Testament? Is the New Testament God's plan B? Because plan A didn't work out terribly well. That kind of idea. Good. These are really common questions, but excellent questions nevertheless. What about you guys here? I'm not similar to what you're mentioning. I think um, for a lot of people, I mean, particularly kind of focus a lot on the New Testament, but actually the New Testament, uh-huh. and sometimes miss a lot of the connections or kind of the overarching right. themes. Right. Okay. Okay. Good. No, thank you. And um, Andy's. I confuses. I think what I was trying to ask was, if the Bible meant to the original readers, can we interpret it differently today? If the original readers or listeners had one understanding, can we have a different understanding today? But it wasn't very well received in my group. So why did you not receive it well? What was the come on? What was your what was your issue? Not that I want to accentuate any division here in, in, in the church, but um, I think I more just didn't understand the question. Okay, okay. So Andy's Andy's pitching in with a an interesting hermeneutical question. You're saying, but I just want to see how it fits together. Thanks first of all, and and that kind of idea. But it is an important question, and I hope we'll we'll, we'll get to some of that. Uh, it, yeah, something. Yeah, somewhat. Yeah. Well, why don't I make the slides available? The slides have got. We'll, we'll see if you you can decide after session whether you want the slides or not. How about that? That might be the best idea. Um, and I'll also recommend some resources as well that will just help to to frame that big picture. <coughs> there might be some controversy around some of these issues that that are mentioned, but I think it's possible just to frame out some of the contours of the Bible's big picture. And that's what I'd hope to do. But, oh, that all came up at once. Rats. Um, 
Oh well, so much for the sort of gradual reveal bullet by bullet. Okay, in that case, we'll just take you <laughs> So why is this important? First of all, it's actually relevant, extremely relevant to the question of what your gospel is. Or the Martians have invented. <laughs> now, um, that's, a, that's a not very funny uh, pun on the ancient heretic Marcion. Okay, Martians, Marcion. It's kind of pretty weak. Um, that's one of my better jokes, by the way, so uh, just watch out. Marcion was, was dubbed a heretic in the second, third century, second, I think, um, because he took the Bible and he cut out the whole Old Testament, and he cut out great big chunks of the New Testament as well, and he just focused on a bit of the Gospels, Luke, Acts, and some of Paul's letters. So that's all you need if you don't need the rest of that stuff. And uh, the thing about Marcion was that that was dubbed at the time a heresy, a serious, serious problem. And uh, he was condemned for it. Now, the reason I've said the Martians have landed is that it's possibly true that in a lot of the church, a lot of the evangelical churches in our present day, we're kind of functionally Marcionite in that we cut out great big bits of the Bible and we don't really have much to do with them. We kind of think it doesn't really matter. Just give me the gospel, just give me Jesus. Give me Jesus, give me bits of Paul, well, the bits I like at least, and not those awkward bits where he says stuff about stuff that I don't really want to consider or doesn't really fit with my culture right now, and, uh, and we'll just stick with that. Um, that. That's often what we end up doing, and um, that's a bit of a problem. Um, it's quite a big bit of a problem. At the moment, I'm, uh, we have a learning community with Chalmers Institute that meets on Mondays in my house in St Andrews. It's about 20, 25 folks come over the course of a day and we have lunch together and we, we're just learning together. In the mornings I'm teaching through the book of Isaiah, 66 books, big chunky book of the Old Testament. And the thing that strikes me there is that we are getting to know Jesus so much better by studying Isaiah. It's fantastic. It's one of the most thrilling studies I've ever done in my entire life. Uh, now, there's just one little example where you're looking at something in the Old Testament and it just opens the, the eyes. It, it, it means that when we come back to the Gospels, suddenly we're seeing in colour and 3D and HD instead of just reading the, the, the Gospel stories. So that's just one example that the Old Testament does matter. We'll, I hope, show why it matters a bit more as we go on through. Um, a lot of this matters... Because what we believe affects what we do. Um, what we do, rather, is a reflection. What we do is the outworking of what we really believe, not just what we say we believe. Um, and if we, and the shape of our gospel, what we think the good news of Jesus is actually about, and what it means practically, is going to be shaped by that biblical big picture. And if we chop the big bits of that picture off, to make it maybe easier for us to accommodate to us, we may then be chopping off big bits that make a practical difference. And that's what I hope we'll get into a little bit as well as we go on through it. And that's all a way of saying, why bother with the Old Testament? And looking at the Old Testament is also going to help us think through questions like, well, what are we actually... What is, what is salvation anyway? What is it that people are saved from? Salvation is a word the Bible uses a lot about being saved. Jesus, the actual word that Jesus means, God saves. Um, what are we saved from? What are we saved for? Is 
just as important a question that we sometimes don't answer quite as clearly. And and thinking about that big picture of the Bible will help us to think about what we're saved for. What is life? What does human flourishing look like? How do we decide what is right and wrong? How do we look at reality and understand the way that reality fits together, the way that it works? How do we understand suffering and why there's suffering in the world? How do we answer questions of why we actually experience suffering as a problem in the world? How do we answer contemporary questions about gender and sexuality and identity and these kinds of really hot topics? These are some of the things that that actually we need a thorough grasp of the big picture of what the Bible's saying in order to give us a framework for viewing reality, for looking at the whole of reality. Because the Bible actually understands and gives us some framework for understanding the way that reality actually works. Why is there something rather than nothing? Why is that something the way that it is? Why are we as human persons here at all? Why do we as human persons experience so much dysfunction in the world? How do we make sense of that? How do we make sense of the things that we long for in life? Good relationships, peace, fulfillment in our work, good relationships with our kids, good marriages. How does that make sense within a secular framework or an evolutionary framework where we're just matter and chance and time? How does the Bible answer some of those big questions about meaning and purpose? Is there a purpose to life? Is there any point to us being here? Or are we just this sort of temporary blip? Or as uh, many of the pantheistic religions would believe, are we just like a little wave on the ocean that crests for a while and then disappears back down into the vastness of the ocean again? Are human beings more significant than that? What's the basis for us thinking that human life is significant? That human life is precious? And that we should treat all human life with dignity? Do we have a basis for thinking about that within our secular democracy? Does the Bible have something to say about that? You see some of the questions that we can begin to ask. We should be beginning to ask because our culture is asking those questions all the time. What is my life? What's the purpose of it? Is there anything after death? Most of you will have people you know and you love who have been sick or are sick, who have died. How do we make sense of those things? Can we make any sense of them? Or is it just meaningless suffering? Does the Bible have something to say about those things? So these are some of the big, big questions that we would have to wrestle with. And the Bible does have a lot to say. Never by the way, never gives us the view over God's shoulder so that we can nicely and neatly explain everything. But it gives us a framework for understanding how reality works. It helps us orientate ourselves to where we are in God's story as history unfolds. So that's what we saved for and what we saved from. That question that was raised already is the gospel. Grace and forgiveness... Is that plan B and is that different somehow from the plan A that you find in the Old Testament? Is it a different God in the old to the new? How many of us instinctively feel that it is? I know that you'll all want to say, no, I've been much better taught than that. But but how many of you instinctively feel, no, I'm just struggling to reconcile these. We've already 
kind of heard that from some folks, and there's a few folks nodding. We kind of struggling a bit with that, and that's okay. Let's struggle with that, and let's look at what the Bible actually says. And there we go. How should I understand then work, leisure, art, literature, culture, you know, the whole of life? Does God actually have anything to say about what you do from Monday to Saturday? Or does he just care about whether you turn up and put your money in the collection on a Sunday? Does the Bible have anything to say about those things? Does the Bible have anything to say about what you do at your work Monday to Friday? Big questions. And then, actually, the, one of the big overarching questions over all this, what is mission? Whose job is it? What does it look like? What's the church for and what's it got to do with that? And the, the interesting thing is ask these questions and frame them and think also about my own experience, my own family's experience of church and of Christian circles over the years. It's really interesting that the Martian gospel, the Martian Christianity that cuts out all the bits of the Old Testament, cuts out lots of the new and just leaves it with um, here's how to get your sins forgiven. That's a very important thing, by the way. Don't hear me saying any less than that. But if you end up with something that's reduced to just that, you have situations like my daughter going to university and after six months saying, Dad, how do they make the gospel boring here? Because there's the same sermon every week and there's nothing about life or culture or creativity or the arts or transformation or all the things that she cares about. And the tragedy of that, of course, is that the Bible has a huge amount to say about those things, but often Christian communities don't. And that's why this big picture is so important. It makes a difference to how we live. Instead of having often a reduced gospel where we're trying to tell people about life and life to the full and people are looking on and saying, who are you trying to get? Actually, this gospel of the whole of the Bible, this big picture good news, is just that. It's good news. It's beautiful. It's exciting. Life-giving. Life-affirming. Life-redeeming. Culture-redeeming. Transformational for every part of life. So as I come to this, that's kind of the passion that I'm bringing to this, is to want to try to say to you guys, the whole of the Bible is ours. The Old Testament is yours as well as the New Testament. And it makes a difference to the way that we live now. It makes a difference to the way we understand the gospel. We'll pause for a second. Is that okay so far? Everyone okay? So that was a bit of a rant, wasn't it? Sorry about that. I mean, just, uh, it just um, started reasonable and got unreasonable. I'm still a bit jet-lagged having got back from the States last Friday. So, um, Ames, appreciate the big picture of the Bible. That's what we're trying to do. We want to try to begin to interpret the parts in the context of the whole and think about what God's mission is and help us to see what might be wrong with now let me just unpack this we've got moralistic interpretations often what we use the Old Testament for anyone here, anyone here got kids uh, a few folks have got kids Everyone here, some people here were grown up in Christian families but if you look at your average children's story Bible then, then this, is, this is very often what we have is moralistic stories you know, this is what this character did and you ought to try and be like him or her 
and that's about it. But does an understanding of the big picture of the Bible make a difference to them? That's our work example a little bit later on. And what does it look like for us to be participants in God's big story? And, well, I don't know, maybe that's a bit overambitious, but we can, we can always aim high, can't we? Now, let's think about what the biblical big story is here. Now, we're going to paint with really, really broad brushstrokes to start with. And then we're going to begin to unpack that in a bit more detail. So the biblical, when we talk about the Bible, uh, the thing to appreciate is, I think, John, you held up the Bible there and you showed two-thirds of it was the Old Testament and a third is the New Testament. How much of that is narrative? How much of it is story? I don't actually know the percentage, I'm just asking if you... Andy, how much of it is... uh... (laughs) It's a lot. It's certainly way more than half. Is narrative, the story. So God has chosen to reveal Himself in terms of story. Yes, there's lots of other stuff. There's wisdom literature. There's um, there's the epistles, which are very often uh, much more doctrinal and telling us what this means and why it's important and what to do about it. But the vast majority of the Bible is actually a story. It's a story. Now, when we use the word story, it doesn't mean something that's not true. It just means something that's a narrative, a, a series of events that starts somewhere and it's going somewhere, moving towards some sort of conclusion. And that's how the Bible presents history, presents it as starting somewhere. Um, of course, that's um, very consistent with lots of the Um, scientific findings over the last 50-60 years. A lot of people had huge problems with Big Bang Theory when it was first proposed. Um, Precisely because Big Bang Theory says there was a beginning. It's all started at some point. And uh, the question of something starting presupposes, well, what was there beforehand? And if nothing, well, who started it? And how did it start? And uh, lots of uh, atheistic scientists try, uh, have tried desperately hard to find alternative explanations and um, come up with all kinds of incredible uh, stories to avoid that. But the Bible presents us with a story that starts somewhere. That this present order, what we see, all this stuff, was made. It didn't, it's not just existed eternally, but it came into being. It's the start, the creation. But it also presents a story that's going somewhere. There's an, there's an end point, there's a goal towards the whole thing. Um, and the Bible also tackles then, and ultra-realistically, by the way, doesn't pull any punches about the fact that things are not the way that they're supposed to be right now. There's something wrong. And the Bible gives an explanation for what's wrong. So we can begin to frame that out. And I'll just put up these things and I'll do a... I like diagrams, so if you don't like diagrams, please just forgive me or bear with me or something. But the biblical big story, we could say, has four broad brushstrokes, just to help us get a grip on that. It starts with creation. The whole thing started somewhere. Fall. There's something wrong. Something's out of place. Something's out of whack. But God doesn't leave it at that. He's doing something about that. We'll just call that redemption and we'll explain what that means and unpack that a bit more as we go on. God's doing something about what's wrong. And it's all going somewhere. It's heading towards, the Bible talks about, as a new creation. 
things being restored, things being fixed, things being the way that it's supposed to be. One of the mistakes that we then make when we're talking about the gospel is we often think the gospel means just starts with accept Jesus as your saviour. Is that an important thing? Yes, of course it's an important thing. Please don't hear me saying anything other than that. The biblical story starts much further back than that. And it starts much further back than that with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The beginning of Genesis 1.1. So when we read the beginning of the Bible, and you read the beginning of Genesis, you get this account of creation. And it's this beautiful account. Uh, it's a very, very important account. Of course, there's been lots of fighting over the Genesis account. But let me just say, um, rather briefly in passing, but we'll, we'll unpack this a little bit more later. The Genesis account basically is concerned with several things. It's a very poetic account. It, um, it's written originally in Hebrew, and it doesn't use the normal Hebrew words for birds and fishes and so on. It, it uses, it just calls them flying things and swimming things and creeping things. And it doesn't even use the normal words for sun and moon. It's, it's just this highly stylized and poetic account. And the point of it, the point of it, <clears throat> is that it's not trying to tell us how, when, or how long, or give us a taxonomy for how God did it all. But it most certainly is saying God did it. God did it. He made it. It's his stuff. And it's good. It's the creation account. It's a startling claim. It's saying no other deity, no other power is responsible for this. It's God. Uh, and he did it. And it's good. And therefore, just, sorry, I, t- <laughs> I taught here just before Christmas. I'm, I'm used to just moan incessantly about all this silence. You all live in Edinburgh, so you, you didn't even notice that there, whereas I live out in the sticks and we don't have that kind of thing. Um, it's God's stuff. We're God's stuff. And we're therefore accountable to him. It's all part of that creation account. The other thing about that creation account is it presents in Genesis 1 the creation of man as the only thing in the whole of creation that's made in God's image and likeness. Actually made like God to look like him, to represent him, to do God's stuff and look after his good creation and do good things with his good creation. And we have this beautiful picture at the beginning then of God creating man and God giving man. When I say man, I don't mean gender specific. I mean just mankind. God giving man this amazing dignity of naming all of the animals. And of course that doesn't mean elephant, giraffe. Naming means something much more profound than that. Naming means denoting the character and the nature of something. That's what the name is in that Hebrew way of thinking. So that man actually has that level of authority and uh, leadership within creation to look after it. And this initial picture then is of man with dominion. Now that might be a word that some of us struggle with. But dominion is a good thing. Domination is a bad thing. Dominion means looking after something well. 
And in the case of the creation account, it means mankind put there to look after this good creation on behalf of the good God who has made it and who pronounces over it, it is exceedingly good. Once he's finished creating it. So that creation account, we'll unpack a bit more of the significance, the implications of that. One implication, of course, being that creation is good and the stuff that God made is good. As um, a former teacher of mine once said, God doesn't make junk and he doesn't junk what he's made. It's an interesting statement. That uh, creation account, we then get into the end of Genesis chapter 2 and we have the man and the woman together. And this utterly beautiful picture, it says they, are, they were naked and they felt no shame. And it's this fantastic picture of the way it's supposed to be. And perhaps within a lot of our hearts we sense that longing that things should be that way. The kind of relationships then that are masks off, no hiding. Where do you look when you're ashamed you're down. It's a sort of downward look, isn't it? It's fascinating later on in the Old Testament, actually the last book of the Old Testament, particularly Malachi, where it talks about God accepting people. The Hebrew idiom for that is, will God lift your face? You see the picture of God taking shamed, downcast faces, lifting them up and looking eye to eye and conferring dignity and honour. Uh, upon that face here we have man and woman with no shame no hiding and of course that's not just physical nakedness it's relationship without barriers relationships without pretending relationships without that false fine thanks to how are you can we imagine that even just for a second Uh, no barriers no pretending no hiding relationships, naked with no shame. It's a beautiful picture of how things are intended to be. And perhaps we could say that most, if not all, of the pain we feel in life is the lack of that and the longing for that and, and how we experience life when that doesn't happen, when others lie to us, let us down, when relationships don't turn out the way that we want them to be, when we feel that we must hide our own shame because to expose it would be to make life unlivable. In other words, things are not now then the way that they're supposed to be. And one of the real problems, and this is something that you can, we can talk about with regard to engaging with those who are not Christian believers. Many would say, well look, Christians can always be accused of why if there's a good God there's suffering in the world. But actually... It's a good question. It's a right question to engage with. It's only a biblical account of reality that explains why we have a problem with suffering in the world. Why we think that that is not the way that it should be. Why it should be different. Why we want it to be different. Because through human history it's never been different, has it? It's always been like this. And the Bible gives a comprehensive account of what we might call the fall. Genesis 3 and ever after to the present and we don't need to look much further than our own hearts or our newspapers or look on the BBC News website today and see what evidences of this fall you see if man is created for a perfect relationship with God which is what you see 
in that creation account and perfect relationship with those around us, then we have this really lovely picture. But then it's broken. And it's broken, as we will read in Genesis 3, by man's disobedience. By man not trusting God to be good. Taking things into his own hands. And that description of the fall is this tragic, this catastrophic breaking of what was beautiful. The first results of that disobedience are the man and the woman becoming aware of their nakedness and covering themselves up. They hide themselves from each other. They hide themselves from God himself as he comes to walk in the garden. And they then blame each other for what's happened. And they blame the serpent for what has happened. And you have this fourfold fracturing of relationship that happens right there. You have a fracturing of the relationship between God and man, firstly. The fracturing of the relationship between man and himself, or human and himself or herself. Because to lie and blame others is to fracture yourself. It's to introduce a disintegration into who we are. And then it fractures the relationship between humans and each other. With, between the man and the woman. And then lastly, it also introduces a fracturing of relationship between humans and the physical creation. A fourfold spoiling of what was beautiful is how the Bible describes this fall. One of the ways of describing this fall or sin, generally, not just sin, stuff that we do, but rather sin as an orientation, uh, was something that Augustine talked about in the 4th century, 5th century. And he talked about sin as being an inward curve. It's a very graphic picture. What he was describing was that instead of us as human beings made to love God and to love others in an in a unself-conscious and self-giving way, instead of that we have curved in upon ourselves. We've curved in to love ourselves and stop loving God and loving others. And right there is the essence of this fall and the fracturing of everything else, the twisting of everything else out of shape from that point onwards. Now we'll have cause to pause and say a little bit more about fall, a little bit more about sin. That's not just because I enjoy talking about sin. It's not least because, in fact, to understand that well, to get a good, robust honest understanding of what the Bible says about sin is actually quite liberating. It's liberating for numbers of reasons. One is that it abolishes self-righteousness. Places us all on the same level. And it says to us all, look, we may not all be as sinful as we could possibly be, but every one of us is infected by the same disease. And in that sense, every one of us is stuffed unless God does something to help. And in fact, what that does is it says, well, that means there's nobody any better than me. There's nobody any worse than me. And I don't have to look around and compare. We're all on this level playing field of desperately needing God to do something. That abolishes self-righteousness. It also abolishes a legalism that says, I've got to work hard to do more and be more to try somehow to gain God's acceptance. A right understanding of the fall and sin says, 
you can work as hard as you like, try as hard as you like, for as long as you like, forever if you like, and it's never going to be good enough. God must do something. That's a biblical understanding of creation and fall. Now, I'm skipping over this and we're going to go back in and just unpack it a bit more a little bit later. But this is just to give the basic contours before we take a, a wee break. Coffee break. It might be a wee break as well, but it's a coffee break at least. Um, now, it's important for us to understand if you think about this big picture as well. That this fall, this sin, this corrupting of what was good, this twisting of something good out of shape, so that things are bent out of shape. One of the best phrases I can think of for that is that we experience things now as not the way they're supposed to be. So for me, I will never forget one of the most tragic experiences. Very good friends of ours who had a a baby that died very shortly after birth and preaching at the funeral service for that baby. We experience that And everything within us says, this is not how it's supposed to be. This is not good. We should not accept this as being just normal. And it's only this account that gives us some impetus to that indignation that there's something wrong, an enemy has done this, something's twisted out of shape in this creation. Now one of the things that we need to grasp though when we think about this is that God didn't need to do anything. Uh, Let me just just let that settle in just a wee bit before we go any further. This is going to help us appreciate some of the wonders of the good news of what God has done. Is that first of all, he didn't need to. We need to understand that when this got broken, twisted out of shape, God would have been entirely just and entirely right to have said, end of story, to have judged it, condemned it. He would have been entirely right and just and fair to have done that at that point. Now, does that sound a bit harsh? It can sound a bit harsh to us, but we need to understand that sin isn't an arbitrary breaking of any minor code. But fall, sin, is actually the thrusting of creation into reverse. It's a violation of the very created order. It's an assault upon the character of the creator himself who made it all. Who alone is good and whose cause is ultimately just and right and true. And he alone has the right to say, no, enough. Now, the fact that God didn't. The fact that any of us here take our next breath is already extraordinary evidence of God's patience, God's kindness, God's grace, and his forbearance. And that's one of the things that this big picture of scripture helps us to begin to grasp. That God doesn't owe me anything. doesn't owe any of us anything. Now, That, again, could sound a bit harsh, but on the other hand, you think, well, God has done something. And he's done something so extraordinary, so amazing, so mind-blowingly good, that we are brought into and restored into relationship with this God. We might call that line redemption, 
God redeeming what has been broken. God buying it back out of slavery, if you like. That's the picture that the word redemption conjures up. And the Bible story doesn't stop with this fall. It doesn't just leave us with the mess. It points us towards where it's going. And it points us towards where it's going in the new creation. So if you read the end of the New Testament, and you look at Revelation chapter 21, for example, and it talks about things being restored to be the way they're supposed to be. It talks about a restored heaven and earth, a new heaven and earth where everything is restored to be the way it's supposed to be. It says there's no more crying or sorrow or pain. God wipes the tears away from every eye. God is there present with his people in perfect relationship again. And it's this lovely, lovely picture of a restored creation. And crucially, it's a picture of a restored physical creation. It's not disembodied spirits up on clouds somewhere playing harps, although I'm not quite sure how disembodied spirits play harps, but you know that popular conception of heaven the sort of disembodied ethereal existence somewhere off in the cloud somewhere, that's not how the Bible sees it the Bible envisages a restored physical creation, and we'll talk a lot more about that as we go on through this as well and again that's important it's really important because one of the things it means is that physicality, created stuff, is not the problem. Sin is the problem. Not the stuff. Not our bodies. Not the physical world round about us. It's good and it's a gift from God. Now we'll say more about that. It's implications for how we think about work, leisure, art, culture, you name it. Lots of implications of that. So, there's a brief overview of the Bible's big picture. Creation, fall, redemption or restoration, whatever word you want to use here, it doesn't really matter. A new creation, the restoration of all things. And I've delivered the cross in the middle there because the Bible presents what Jesus did. His finished work of living, dying on a cross, rising again, and then now sitting in the place of authority over the whole universe. The Bible presents that as being the grounds, the, the basis for this work being completed and guaranteed. Okay, so far? That's a big picture. Now, my next slide just puts a few more details into that. Now, what do you reckon? Go for that and... How? I don't know, I've not tried it before. It's <laughs> a silly question to ask me, Andy, I'm sorry, but... Um, is that breaking five? Yeah, okay, let's break in five. Let's see how far we get. If I go too fast, we can then go back to that. So that's that big picture. Everyone okay with that so far? It's not difficult to grasp some of that. The difficulty is beginning to unpack why that's important and how it means and where the bits fit. So let's just put a bit of the biblical storyline onto this in some more detail, which is what some of you were keen to do. It's a ridiculous fancy transition, isn't it? Now, creation to fall. And then this story of God's redemption. That's really the story between Genesis chapter 3, when you get a promise from God that says to the woman, your seed will, uh, will bruise the head of the serpent, the serpent will bruise your heel. And there's a sort of... 
total promise of the gospel. The gospel there in a sort of uh, seed form that's then going to be unpacked in the rest of the story of the Bible. And the rest of the story, and this is what's key, is to understand that that story of God redeeming doesn't just start with Jesus. It starts from Genesis 3, from that fall, and it plays its way out right the way forward from there to the end of the Bible, and indeed to the end of time. And understanding that that's one story, not two stories, not three, not lots of different fragmented stories, but one big story is really what we're wanting to try to unpack. What does God do about this problem of sin? And what we see as we go through Genesis, I'm just going to cherry pick little bits here and there, uh, just to try and orient us. What he does is God enters into a relationship. We see him entering into a relationship with this guy called Abraham, and saying, I'm entering into a relationship with you, I am going to bless you, I'm going to give you lots of offspring, and through all of your offspring, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed by me. God enters into what the Bible calls a covenant. A covenant is a relationship. It's hard to define because a relationship is like a story. How do you define a marriage relationship or define your friendship with somebody? You need a story to define a relationship. And that's exactly what the Bible gives us. This unfolding personal relationship between God and his people through time. And the principle that's introduced at the very beginning there, and actually I think at this point we will take a wee break, a vitally important principle is that what God does and starts to do in order to reverse the effects of this here is that he enters into a relationship with some people. And he calls those people into a relationship with himself and he blesses them. And he shows them how to live in a way that reflects who God is and what he's like. So that so that the world can see who this God is and what he's like. And they too can come to know him. So right at the beginning here in Genesis 12, you have the idea of mission. God calling people into a relationship with him. So that through those people who are in a relationship with God, where he is faithful and gracious and he loves them, with an enduring, everlasting love, that through that, all the nations are blessed. That's how God begins the story of redemption, of redeeming, undoing what is broken and twisted out of shape. Okay, so far, everybody? Let's have a, let's have a tea or a wee break, indeed, if you need one. Okay?